we do use a phrase from time to time, perfect timing. And when we use that phrase, perfect timing, we're verbalizing how we recognize things have come together, a multitude of things have come together at just the right time in just the right way to bring about a preferred outcome. And so we might put it this way even, at just the right time. Sometimes we use a phrase also, timing is everything. And we use that phrase when we are referring to that uh, there are better times than others for something to take place. And that if we want the best of all possible outcomes in a situation, then timing really is everything. And so we realize when we use phrases like that, though, that we live in a world that's governed by time. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. And we come to realize that by and large, time is predictable and it's stable. If we're honest with ourselves, we see how time structures our lives. It determines when we go to bed often, when we get up, when we go to work, when we take a few days off, when we eat, when we meet, when we vote. There's a universal reality to our lives being guided and directed by time. Time, really, we can say is at the heart of human existence. Time is the all-embracive medium of our lives. It's, it's what we immerse ourselves in. It's within us as well as all around us. And the reality of that, though, is that then we who live in time and we who are governed by time, we don't have any way to understand time because we've never been outside of it. We've never detached ourselves from the environment of time. It's kind of like a fish trying to explain what it's like to live in the environment of water. It can't do that because it's never lived outside of that environment. But we still look at ways to try and understand time. So there's a group of people, a group of religions that realize that though life is short, we are not here only once, they would argue. They view time uh, and history as cyclical. It just keeps going around and around and around. And when they do that, they then view eternity as within time. Of course, they can only assume this because they've never been outside of time. But they do believe that time is cyclical and eternity is within time. Others view time as purely chronological. It is time, though, shorn from its belief in God. There is no being outside of time. There is no transcendent um, view of life. Their view of time is one that is ultimately without eternity. When we die, we just cease to exist and there's nothing after time. They look at time as simply chronological or linear perspection or progression without any meaning or purpose. And you get that. If you just die at the end of time, what is the meaning and purpose to life? But again, they can only assume that view too because they've never been outside of time. So they don't really know that when you die, there is no eternity. And then there's a third way, I think, and these are broad categories of looking at time. And that is that time is linear and covenantal, if we want to put it that way. And the truth behind this view of time is that there is a sovereign God, there is a free God who stands outside of time, who created time and everything within time. He created human beings after his likeness and in his image. And in this light and in this view, then, history has meaning and our lives have meaning. Under these twin truths of the sovereignty of God and of human significance, 
then time and history are going somewhere. And each of us is not only unique and significant in ourselves, but we have a unique and a significant place in our generation and in the time in which we live. I was thinking of Esther when Mordecai came to her and said, who knows whether you have come to the throne for such a time as this. That's a view that time has meaning and time has purpose. When time ends, God has told us eternity begins. And there's only one that actually knows that because God lives outside of time. He knows the beginning of time and the end of time. He knows what came before time and what came after time. And so from God, we learn that time is not cyclical. Time is not chronological without meaning. But he has created time to have both purpose and meaning and therefore beauty. Probably one of the best known poems about time is found in a biblical book called Ecclesiastes. This is the text. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, embracing, which we realize we're in now, a time to seek, and a time to bless, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And yet, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's a beautiful description of time. A 20th century physicist once wrote, time is nature's way to keep everything from happening at once. What you find out about what he said, though, was he found it written on a bathroom stall in a cafe in Texas. Nonetheless, we have time and we live in it. But notice that this poem also describes eternity. There is a time for eternity, it says really, when he says he has put eternity into the time or into every man's heart. It's awareness that time is not all there is. It's an awareness that, that at the end there is something after that. That God has made everything beautiful in its time also reminds us that while we live in time, there is meaning and purpose and beauty. God created. It says in the beginning God created. He created the boundaries of time by giving us the sun and the moon and the stars, which regulate our hours and our days. But as the creator of time, he remains outside of time. But as we will soon see, and this will make sense in a minute, God is not detached from time. So come back to a phrase that was in the poem, a time to be born and a time to die. We know this, don't we? In fact, we are living with this in our face every single hour of every single day. 
It's what is creating so much intense fear and anguish and anxiety for people is this reality that there is a time to die. But as we come to realize from a Christian perspective, death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. And we need to think that through. But we say, well, are these random events? Is this virus an accident of evolutionary development? And what about the time between the time we are born and the time we die? Does it count for anything? I've heard it said a few times that the time between the time we are born and the time we die, the two dates on our gravestone, is simply a dash between two times. And behind it, though, is even the question, I think, a little bit further. What hope do we have of investing any meaning in that dash if that's all it is? Well, at this time, in particular, as we're thinking about Christmas and the birth of Christ, I want to remind us and inform us that because God guides it and created it, God fills it and directs it, and he gives very real meaning and purpose to time and to our lives within that time. We think about human existence. Each one of us is created in the image of God. That, that in itself gives humans dignity and worth that the rest of creation doesn't have. It gives us purpose as God has purpose. But furthermore to that, God has determined the exact place and date and boundaries of our lives. They're not random. And he has done it for the sole purpose, well, for one purpose, that we might find him, that we might seek after him and find him. He has created our lives so that we might do good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And at the end of our life, as the poem said, there is a time to die. And that's not a random time either because the scriptures tell us that the God who created time has also determined the exact number of days each one of us will live. And at the end of those days, we have an appointment with God to discuss how we lived that dash between our time that we were born and the time that we will die. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Now follow me, what is true of us then is also true of the baby that was born to Mary. He too, being like us in every way except without flesh, being like us in human form, there was a time for Christ to be born and a time for him to die. The text that we read was at just the right time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. And just as we will see, the events of his birth were not random, accidental, serendipitous. They were planned and determined by God. At just the right time, Christ was born. So also, at the end of his life, at just the right time, after Christ had lived the full number of days that God had ordained for him, he died. And in fact, we read that in the book of Acts. For there, Peter, summarizing the death of Jesus, says, For in fact, in the city of Jerusalem, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy son Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. 
So for us, so for Christ, a time to be born and a time to die. I say all of that, and I took a long way to get there, to tell us and remind us that Christmas is not a random event. And by Christmas, I'm meaning the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus to his mother Mary was not just a random happenstance that took place. It was perfect timing. At just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, into this world. So let's unpack that phrase a little bit from Galatians chapter 4, those phrases, and work our way through them for the rest of our time this morning. When was Jesus born? Well, we know the date, but the Bible describes it here. Paul describes it as in the fullness of time. And so what we can say about Jesus' birth was it was perfect timing. It happened at just the right time. And many have demonstrated the, the, um, the, that the birth of Jesus was at the perfect time, or they tried to do this by looking at the, the state of the world when Jesus was born. They speak about the state of the Roman Empire and its impact on the world, the, the whole world at that time. They speak about the cultural impact of the time Jesus was born and the fact that there was really two predominant languages, Latin and Greek. There were spiritual realities in, 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 that were taking place, prophecies that were coming to be fulfilled. There was a whole biblical current of thought and expectation that were leading to this being just the right time. But after all, the Bible doesn't explain that, or certainly Paul doesn't explain that. He just makes the statement, and behind that statement is a world of biblical truth, but he simply says at just the right time, when God determined it, and it had been determined before the foundation of the world, at the exact hour, in the exact day, Jesus was born according to God's plan. Really, that phrase says a lot more about God than it does about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. And as the exact time and place of our birth was determined by God before we were ever born, so the exact time and place of Jesus' birth was determined by God. And so that's the second sort of question. Who determined that it was the fullness of time? Well, God did. Because God is outside of time. God is the one who controls time. God is real, and that changes everything. And we say, well, what kind of God is able to do this? Well, a God who is outside of time and space. A God who is not part of time, so he can see the beginning and the end. A God who guides and directs and controls time. A God who knows it because he has determined it, because he has determined the course of history. But also a God who is not detached from this world. A God who does not just set the world going and then stands back and watches it unwind. Rather, it's a God who is personally engaged and involved in the world in which he created. He steps into our time and our space. God loves us and believes in us as humans even more than we could ever love us and believe in ourselves. It's only such a God who could determine the right time and the right place for his son to be born. And so it's a reminder to us that the birth of Jesus was part of God's plan for mankind. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just a serendipitous set of circumstances that God suddenly took advantage of. No, the birth of Jesus was the thought out, planned out, 
plan of God set into motion at just the right time. These are basic, I know, but the next question then is simply, well, what did God do in the fullness of time? Well, he sent his son. It doesn't pain me to remind us of this. We've spent the last two weeks talking about the the fact that Jesus was both God and man. We talked about the names that he was given that help us understand his character and his personality and his abilities. Isaiah reminded us of this when he says, unto us a child is born through Mary, came through the birth canal of Mary, and unto us a son is given. Was A son who was the eternal son of God who was sent into time through Mary, called Emmanuel. God with us. In this, the love of God was manifest to us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son into the world reminds us that his son existed before God sent him into the world. And we've considered this over the past little while. And so this baby that was born to Mary existed before time existed. And God sent him into time and space through Mary. This is amazing and it's wonderful. And this is why he can do what he does for us. And that's the... The next question, well, how did God send his son into the world? I've already mentioned that he did so through a woman. It says, God sent his son into the world born of a woman. This is just reminding us again of the humanity of Jesus. He was like us in every way. He wasn't some supernatural, um, special kind of woof, and God appeared in Mary's womb. That God brought him into this world through Mary. God could have done it in so many different ways, but he chose to make his son so identify with us that as we were born, so was he. As we have flesh and blood, so did he. Then he tells us something else, Paul. He says, born of a woman, born under the law. This tells us something we might not know or we might not have thought about or we might not even understand. What does it mean? That Jesus was born under the law. Well, let's start with the law. It's not a reference to just any law. It's a reference to the law of God given to Moses. These are what we know as the Ten Commands given to Moses by God. Some of you are familiar with this. This is what we understand as the moral law of God. It's given to guide and direct every single human being who is ever born. It's written on stone and it's written in our hearts. And these express the boundaries of God's desire for our lives. They not only direct our acts, but they are to direct our thought and intent and motives. This is the law that Jesus was born under. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your savory. You must not have any other gods but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. 
You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember and observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your house may do any work. That includes you or your sons or your daughters, your male or female servants, your livestock, or any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long life. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not falsely testify against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The succinct summary of these ten words is, given by Jesus in response to a question. Teacher, what's the most important commandment or law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So to be born under the law meant that Jesus himself was accountable to those laws that God gave to Moses and the people. These are God's laws. He authored them. And as a man, Jesus submitted himself to its authority over his life. He lived his life under that law, so to speak. Jesus entered into the world under a state of obligation to that law. So that at every moment of his life, he was constrained by that law. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said, Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. Now work that through in your heads for a moment. It's the same law that we are under. It's the same law that we are accountable to. It's the same law that we all are to live our lives um, and have our lives constrained by. And the punishment for even one slip-up of act or thought or intent or motive is eternal estrangement from God. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we realize that the testimony of Jesus by saints and by sinners is that there was nothing wrong in him. And it was certainly declared by his father when he raised him from the dead that he had never broken a single aspect of the law of God. He obeyed it fully, completely, perfectly in every way. So Jesus was born into the world the same way we were. And he was born under the law, the same law that we are born under. We say, well, why was Jesus born under the law? Well, Paul says to redeem those who are under the law. This is not what we hear at Christmas time, but it's what we believe and what matters and what we think about at Christmas time. This is the heart of Christmas, really. This tells us why this baby was born. This tells us who this baby is and why he was born for us. Explains why he was born of a woman and why he was born under the law. It's to redeem every one of us who 
were like him in every way except without sin and who needed freeing because of our sin. And this is where we jump to the end of Jesus' life. Remember, a, a time to be born and a time to die. Jesus entered the world at just the right time. So also Christ died at just the right time. A time determined by God. So what does it mean that we are redeemed from the law? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we can do whatever we like. We can cast off all restraint. We can live, our, live out all our desires. When Christ came to redeem us from the law, he did a number of things. One, he set us free from its curse. Every time we break a law, we incur a penalty. We are held accountable for every infraction of God's law. We are cursed with the knowledge that we have broken God's law. And we have no way out from under the obligations of that law. Jesus became so identified with the curse resting on his people that the whole of it and all of it was in all of its unrelieved intensity became his. He took all of that curse, he took all of that um, uh, the judgment, he took all of that in himself and he exhausted it when he died on the cross. In other words, what Paul is saying is that Jesus came to, into the world to pay a debt. To pay a debt I could never pay. I was doomed and drowning in a sea of moral debt, so to speak. Some of you maybe can understand this from a financial picture. And I don't know if it's a great analogy, but it helped me as I was working this through. You, you have spent more money than you earn. In fact, you know you owe more money than you'll ever be able to repay. And the penalties and the interest and the unpaid bills hang over you like a curse around your every waking moment. What started out to be a pleasure in the joy of buying or consuming has now become a curse and you feel its weight every waking moment. Some of you, though, have experienced the relief of that debt through an unexpected inheritance or a significant bonus or even bankruptcy. But what we're talking about here is a moral debt that every one of us owes a moral debt that hangs over our head every second of the day. But for those who trust in Christ, Christ takes that debt upon himself. He pays the penalty in full. He absolves us of that debt and therefore the curse that, that we feel every waking moment. And by the way, just as it would be silly to try and repay a debt and pay interest of a debt that had already been paid for you financially, why would we ever try and do that for a spiritual debt that has already been paid for us? It's an affront to Christ and his death when having been freed from the curse, we try and pay off that curse. So Christ came to bear our curse, to redeem us from the curse of the law. But he also filled all the conditions of the law. That's why he could pay off the curse. He lived in perfect obedience to every aspect of the law. It shaped his living. It shaped his thinking. So when you trust in Christ, 
He frees you from all the terms and conditions of that law. All the fine print. There are no outstanding demands. There are no outstanding conditions still to be met. There will be no law collector or debt collector that can come and tap on your heart and say, well, you still owe this for this. Christ his moral perfection is taken by God and it's placed on us. And our immoral imperfection is taken from us and it's placed on Christ. And we are fully freed from the obligation of every term and condition of that law. Thirdly, when we think about being freed or redeemed from the law, and these are all tied together, but Christ frees us, redeems us from the law of works. And I don't think there's a single person who has not felt this as a possible avenue to justification and acceptance by God. As long as I do enough good works that balance out my bad works, that God will accept me and that I'll be justified in his sight. And we think that if we just do enough good, if we, if we just do enough good things after we do a bad thing, that somehow that justifies us and that makes us right in God's sight. That's never true because even one infraction of the law renders us guilty before God and there's no way that we can ever pay the debt of that single infraction. And so when Christ redeems us from the law, he redeems us from the, 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 the need to have to try and obey the law to be right with God. Did you know this about the baby born to Mary? Did you know that God sent him into the world at just the right time? Born of a woman, just as all of us were. Born under the law, as all of us are. To redeem us from that incredible burden and weight and curse of the law. Did you know that God even has determined that you would hear these words, maybe for the first time or for the hundredth time today? Understand this, though, we live in the limits of time, and as one individual said, time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. See, every one of us is only a breath away from leaving time and entering into eternity. This is why there is so much urgency in the Scripture and so much urgency that we need to feel and you need to feel if you don't know Christ to put your trust in Him. To put your life in the hands of Mary's baby, God's son. And the final question is, what's the result of all of this? What's the result of this redemption? See what Paul says? That we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Do you realize that? That, that when you put in your trust in Christ, you... you, you, you you become part of a new family. You become part of the family of God. And being part of that family comes with all the benefits and privileges of, of being a child of God, of being Christ's brother. You have all the same privileges that Christ has. And one of the most startling privileges of being a son or a daughter of God is that you call God Father. Truly, in every sense of the word, God is our Father. Incredibly, 
God has the adoption papers drawn up and everything necessary to make you a full son or daughter in the family of God has then accomplished by Christ who died in our place. This is why Christmas is so important. This is why it matters that we push away all the, the layers of secularism and, and open up the layers of the Bible. Somebody wrote, time is too slow for those who wait, too swift for those who fear, too long for those who grieve, too short for those who rejoice. But for those who love, time is not. There's a sense that when we are embraced by God and when we embrace God through Jesus Christ, His Son, that time is no more because we are engulfed in the love of God. And the fullness of time tells us that Christmas was no mistake. When timing is everything, the birth of Jesus Christ was perfect timing. And the life of Jesus, although only 33 years, was full of purpose and meaning. And it was so because he trusted in his heavenly Father. And what is true of Christ can be true of each one of us today. Certainly, we all fit into time in our own unique ways. But making the most of time, making the most of each day, making the most of life because of God's creation of our lives and time gives life meaning and purpose. But the birth and death of Jesus are not the end. It's not the end of this story. Redemption and adoption are not only for this age, but they are for the age to come. The end of the story of this present age is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what we talk about when we talk about Advent. We remember the first coming of Christ, but we anticipate the second coming of Christ. And Hebrews, the writer there tells us, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As certain as our death is and our appointment with God, so is the certainty of Christ's second coming. And it will also come at the fullness of time, at just the right time. It might seem like it's never going to come. And people in the world have thought that time and time again. When is Jesus going to come again the second time? When is he going to come back to the earth? And there's an explanation of that. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you have not yet received Christ and you still have breath in your lungs, then you are a recipient of God's patience and of God's mercy. But know this, there is a time coming, just like the first coming of Christ, the exact timing was in God's mind. So too the Bible tells us this, concerning the day, that second coming, concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man. That day and that hour, in the fullness of time, only God the Father knows. 
And the amazing thing, when Christ came the first time, it was a humble birth. It was a birth that was sort of um, just in an obscure part of the world. But when he comes a second time, the clouds will part. A trumpet will resound throughout the universe. And Christ will descend, this time in all his might and power and glory. And we will see him, who is truly God, come to save us and take us forever to be with him. Father, we come before you today, and I'm thankful for just this few moments that we've had to talk about, and I've had even to reflect throughout this week about the sending of your son into this world. What an incredible gift that was. I pray, Father, that we would reflect on the reality that there was a purpose and an intention and a timing behind the birth of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate goal of that was to provide a way of salvation for all of us who would put our trust in him. Father, would you pull the veil away from our eyes that we would not just see a baby or even a no-name baby, but that we would see the child, Mary's son, the son of God, the one who has come to redeem us from our sin. Would you help us as we reflect on that through the rest of this day and maybe into the week we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.